If you have been with us uh, through the series in the last number of weeks, you would know that we're talking about the rest of the story, meaning what is to be understood with the rest of time that is before us. The Bible talks about that there are end days, in fact, describes us as being in those end days, and the book of Revelation has been given to the Christian community as a means of comfort that we might have some understanding of what takes place in the time in which we live, as well as in the time when the apostles lived, as well as in the time if the Lord tarries a thousand years from now. In the past two messages, we have talked about three very important identities, one being the throne, the second being the scroll, and the third being what's called the seals. The throne represents God's sovereign control in life. The scroll, referring to God's decrees, that is his purposes which he has planned, He's planned all things that come to pass, and this represents this scroll or book, all of those plans. And then we thirdly saw the seals. There were seven seals, and these seals hold this book or this scroll where it cannot be opened. And the concern there that it could not be opened is that without it being opened, then God's purpose and plan for his universe cannot be executed for the well-being of his church. And so we see Christ, who is the one worthy to open the seals in chapter 5, and then in chapter 6, he begins to actually open seal by seal, and to the Christian's great amazement, as the Lord himself is executing the plan The plan, which is Almighty God's plan, is inclusive of trials, tribulations, persecutions, suffering, death. And it raises the suspicion of the Christian to say, how can this be? My God is a good God. He doesn't do things like that. The evil one does bad things and causes these things to take place. But certainly not Almighty God. I love him too much to believe it. It's thrown some of us to see the seals executed by God and then to see what's in that book, inclusive of pain and suffering, and to see it is in the decrees of Almighty God himself. Some of you have challenged that, and I appreciate you keep challenging, you keep thinking. But what concerns me is that there are many who would say, I disagree and I believe the Bible is God's word. Now, I know that many of you who are seekers here, that's a tough one for you. You're still battling, trying to investigate. Is the Bible really worthy to be believed? Well, I'm talking at this minute in this message to you that are Christians. And I ask you, do you believe the Bible is God's word? And if you say, yes, I do. Would you just listen to these verses? Consider. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city, and the trumpet blown means there's calamity coming, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord 
done it? Lamentations chapter 3, 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Or Isaiah 45, 7. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. First Samuel chapter 2, 6 and 7. The Lord kills. The Lord makes alive. He brings down to shale and raises up. The Lord makes poor. The Lord makes rich. The Lord brings low. The Lord also exalts. It gives meaning to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.11 at the end of that verse, referring to the same God who works all things after the counsel of his will. Christian, we have to come to grips with the question, is God in control? To what degree is he in control? Seeker, you're going to have to do the same thing. Because as you begin to examine the God who may potentially be your Lord and Master, you need to know him. And there are so many here who would say, you know those tornadoes that took place this last week? Boy, that God could have nothing to do with that. And many Christians would say, I at least hope that what I read in Scripture for some reason may not be true. Maybe the Lord doesn't cause such calamities. I certainly hope not. Let me tell you my perspective. And I've got a long way yet to go in my spiritual pilgrimage. But from where I've come to, I used to say, oh, I hope God doesn't do those things. You know where I am now? Oh, I hope he does control all things. I hope even that is a part of his plan, recognizing that God hates these things. But the truth of it being, Almighty God, decreeing all things, takes what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. And to realize there's something far greater that God loves to accomplish that some of us have no clue yet to understand. And that's why we're introduced in Scripture to the word trust. It's faith. Christianity begins with trust and knowing the Redeemer. And the end of the story as it continues is constantly trust, trust, trust. Will we trust him that he's in control, that his decrees actually include all things? Now for the Christian, all of these calamities work together for good. That is because we love him. He works them in an intricate plan for our own good. That is not true of the non-believer. And what we're about to do now is to see seven trumpets, just like we saw seven seals. We'll see seven bowls of wrath, seven peals of thunder. These seven trumpets will represent the calamities that are taking place throughout the history of the church from the first coming to the second coming of Christ, not referring to specific individual events as all the calamities that take place through the history as they impact the lost, which does not work together for good for them. Rather, these become trumpets which initiate a judgment, a beginning judgment, a partial judgment, so to speak, Unlike the bowls of wrath, which will be the ultimate judgment. But the one thing about the trumpets we're going to see is that there is an element of mercy in them. 
and that God is going to use the trumpets as a warning that even those who oppose Almighty God might see, might fear, and might turn to the Redeemer. That's the trumpet. Don't confuse them. It's just referring to calamities, but viewing it from the perspective of those who are not Christians. Seeker, what an important message for you. Consider what we read. Our text begins with a preparation for the trumpets in chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. We're going to see there the seven trumpets given to the seven angels. They prepare to blow them. There is in verses 3 through 5 discussion about a censer, a golden censer, full of incense and refers to the prayers of both Messiah Christ and the Christians and that prayer thrown down to earth is going to say that God is going to now use the calamities as trumpets both to judge initially and to warn this all being the work of the trumpets answers to the prayers of the believers and of the Lord Jesus as well. Then we pick up in chapter 8 verse 7 And through 17, we see four trumpets of physical harm. In verse 7, we see the first trumpet that would be considered land calamities. All of the various disasters that take place on the land of this earth. Then in verses 8 and 9, we see the second trumpet, sea calamities, that which takes place on the open seas, the Titanic's of the past and of the present and of the future, sea calamities. The third trumpet referring to land water calamities on the rivers and lakes, the various tragedies, the floods that take place and so forth in this world. The fourth trumpet referring to weather calamities, all those evil things that happen to this earth Because of abnormal functioning of the heavenly bodies, weather calamities, verses 12. And then we come to 13, the end of those four. Now each of those four are paralleled to the various plagues that Egypt experienced. We come to verse 13, and now there's a little break, a vulture Bird of prey is going to now announce that the three worst woes are yet to come. And so we now turn to chapter 9, verses 1 through 21, and we see three trumpets of intense anguish, the fifth trumpet being Satan's non-fatal attacks. We see that verse 1, the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, The key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit. And then it talks about in verse 3, and out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. Don't think of literal locusts, but that which devours. And a key word here, and power was given them. Who was the power given by? God himself. All of this referring to the demonic forces. Certainly there's some confusion here that you wouldn't understand yet. And that would be the opening of that pit. We'll read of it in just a moment. Suggesting that as time draws near, we're going to see a greater and greater effort 
even of the evil one. Smoke, referring to deception, delusion, sin. The demonic forces who are robbing of light, righteousness, and holiness, and joy that we need to be experiencing. Verse 7, it goes on to talk about the appearance of the locust. It gives a description. And then in verse 11, it says, They have as king over them the angel of the abyss, his name in Hebrew, Abaddon, in the Greek, Apollyon, referring to Satan. Now we find in verse 12, the first woe, that is the first of the three final woes, is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these. So now we turn to the sixth trumpet, verses 13 through 21. These refer to Satan's fatal attacks. If we had read more carefully in the sixth trumpet, we would have seen that God says, uh, you can touch man, but you cannot take his life. Now the evil one is told, you can touch man, and you can take life. But over and over we say, but only a third saying, look, I'm going to give you the freedom to do evil, but I'm going to limit it, I'm going to control it, and I'm going to use it. So here are your parameters. And so the sixth angel, verse 13, sounded. I heard the voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And then it says in verse 15 midway, so that they might kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. You read the text. This is talking about the demonic forces of God. Not a literal number, but 200 million. I mean, cannot even imagine such a large host of the demonic forces at work in this world. We now see that there is a break. There's a break for almost two chapters. Chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 13. And I'm going to pause on that just a moment and move to verse 14 where it says the second woe is past, which is really the sixth of the trumpets. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And we see in verses 15 through 19, the seventh trumpet, it's the final judgment. There we see the angel sounding his trumpet. We end in verse 19 at the end where it says, And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And here is the judgment of God, the final judgment, as it is now beginning. And there are your seven seals. We've covered the beginning to the end. I have a good friend who pastors a large church in the Washington, D.C. area. Each week at the end of his message, he pauses and he asks the congregation if anyone has a question. And the congregation has been coached well to scream out in unison. This is a large church, very much like ours. And all the people know that come to the church regularly when he asks that question that they're to cry out in unison and say, so what? He's preached for 30, 40 minutes. He's got five left. And they say, okay, good. Now, so what? And then he gives application to his message. Well, between the sixth trumpet, the description of God's warnings to the unrighteous, and the seventh trumpet, a description of the final judgment, 
we see a parenthesis, an insert, chapter 10, 1 through 11, 14. And this, in essence, is God's response to the question which John, speaking for all the saints of all times, must have least been mentally screaming out, saying, so what about us? So what about us? You've told us about the trumpets and what it does to all of the people who are not yours, but what about us? What about your church? What's happening to us during all of these trumpets that are sounding? And so there's a parenthesis and there's an answer to that question. And here it is. First, there is the description of the commission and witness of the church. Chapter 10, 1 through 11, 7. And there are six different little episodes that take place in this passage. It goes like this. The description of the strong angel, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10, began saying, And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. And then it says, And he had in his hand a little book which was open. And then there was the first three, the crying out with a loud voice. is when a lion roars, and when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voice. So this strong angel has a book. We'll see what that book is in a minute. Then we find in verse 4 the forbiddance to write the seven peals of thunder. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken. Do not write them. These seven thunders, referring to seven messages, as an answer to the angel's question. And a voice comes up and says, "Uh uh-uh, seal them, don't write them. We'll never know what those messages were. God will never let us know. Thus, we will never be able to know and describe all of the factors and agencies that determine the future. That's why you and I Christians scratch our head and say, why did God do that? Why did he allow that? Why did he initiate that? And thus, we've got to be real careful when we start predicting the future and what is and why is. Be very careful. We can understand the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, but not the seven thunders. We'll not know. Then we see the promise of an immediate seventh trumpet. The end of verse 6, it says, There shall be delay no longer, saying, Bring on that seventh trumpet. And the question is often asked, Well, wait. Why is there a delay? There's such a now long break, almost two chapters. Well, keep in mind, it only appears to be a delay. This is not intervening chronologically. It is simply and merely showing that there is a description of the dispensation that needs to be given. So now we come to verses 8 through 11, the eating of the little book. Verse 8, And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, Go, take the book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land, meaning he is covering the whole world here. And I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, 
but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And so he does just that. And he says, when he ate it, it was sweet, but after he'd finished, his stomach became bitter. Verse 11, they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. To eat the book, the book is the gospel, it's the word of God. He says, you're going to eat the book, and when you taste it, Christian, it's going to be so sweet to you, it'll be the delight of your heart, as Jeremiah said. But when you begin living it, expect to be persecuted. It's going to turn bitter. But now you've eaten it. Now you're fed. Now go prophesy. Preach the truth to the world of all peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So now we come in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11, the measuring of the temple, altar, and people. There was given me a measuring rod like a staff, verse 1. And someone said, rise, measure the temple of God. That's the people of God. And the altar and those who worship in it, all of God's people. And leave out the court which is outside the temple. Those are those that appear to be Christian. They're at the court. They're not inside. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread under the foot of the holy city for 42 months. Simply saying, find those that are the true believers. Keep out those who are not. I've talked to a number of people recently who have said, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm just not born again. I'm a Christian. I just don't live for God. I'm a Christian. And I'll suggest many of those that are speaking to me are in the court and they will not be measured. The ones that Jesus, to whom Jesus will say, I never knew you, you practice lawlessness. 42 months referring to the entire gospel age. We'll see this coming up again and again. 42 months, the gospel age. I won't go into the description of that. It is the exact same thing as 1,260 days that we'll see in just a minute. And it's also the same as a time times and a half time or three and a half years now we're going to come and let's just remember whenever you see those terminologies I'm not going to go into describe it but it's simply referring to the time from the first coming to the second coming of Christ now we see the authority of the two witnesses verse 3 and I will grant authority to my two witnesses the two witnesses being the church Illustrative of God's people as they go out, as Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, his two witnesses, they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, meaning they're going to preach repentance, the importance of repentance. And it tells how the authority is given them. Think of Jesus when he said to his church through his apostles, and all authority is given to you on heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples. It's exactly what it's talking about here. And then he's going to follow with Fourfold description symbolically of what he's just said. Two olive trees, two candlesticks, sent out two by two. Fire and judgment proceeding from the mouth. Ability to stop the, even the rains. Those are just, I'm not going to go into them, too much time would be taken. But symbolically, just talking about the work of the church. And that ends the description of the commission and witness of the church. Now note what follows. The suffering and defeat, and we should say near defeat, of the church. First, we see the victory of the unrighteous in verse 7. 
When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. A beast, that non-Christian world under the demonic's influence, going to battle against the church. This is going to be called Armageddon. The church, as a mighty organization, will appear to be destroyed. And then we see in verses 8 and 9 the indignity of the unrighteous and their dead bodies, the two witnesses that appear to be dead now, will lie in the street. The church will seem to be powerless. And the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, were also where also their Lord was crucified, and those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days, a very brief period of time compared to the three and a half years, and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. They're going to revel in the death of the church. It's going to look bad. May I suggest that this is referring to what we've already looked at in the first of our keys Revelation 27 and 8 where it says when the thousand years are completed Satan will be released from his prison will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog gather them together for the war the number of them is like the sand of the seashore and so this section ends with the celebration of the unrighteous in verse 10 Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, that is the dead, the church, and make merry. They will send gifts to one another. They will high-five each other and say, look what we've done. We've snuffed out this ugly, nasty church that has been such a pest to us because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And many a non-Christian says, these Christians torment me the way they talk and live. But I'll suggest that their celebration is a bit premature it takes us to the third and final piece the deliverance and victory of the church and we see first in verse 11 the renewal of the church and after these three and a half days the breath of life from God came into them that is the church they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them and then the rapture Verses 12 through 14. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they, the church, went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Let me tell you, there's no secret rapture. The enemies see what's happening. They're taken to safety. And verse 13, And in that hour there was a great earthquake. And it tells now of the judgment of God. If you were with us in the first week of the keys, we said the rapture and the judgment go together. They're described here. Verse 12, the rapture, and right there with it, verse 13, the judgment. The second woe is passed. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And then he comes right back into the judgment, the story of the judgment. Let me conclude by saying this. When God answers our questions of So what about us? During all these trumpets, what about you and me, Christian? Our response to his answer should be, I will eat of the little book. I'll partake of the word of God. I will expect, secondly, the gospel. 
to be sweet to me. Christian, if you know the Lord, to be in the scriptures is a sweet thing. To know the truth and the ways of God. To see him in scripture. But thirdly, we should expect that we are to be witnesses. And that selflessly, we should be going out into the world. And I can't help but wonder if Almighty God would look at some of our endeavors as Christians during all of these trumpets as they're being blown. The witnesses that are going out where so many of us are given our whole life to occupation, to advancement of personal cause, to pleasure. And he's probably saying to us, so what? So what you're popular? So what you're rich? So what you've got all this stuff? What really counts is you be faithful as a witness. I've given you authority. And I think our response would be to expect the bitterness of persecution. Kids, it should mean rejection for you when you stand up for Christ. And lastly, I would suggest that because of this, we would remain hopeful that we will ultimately win. As the drama said, we win. Christian, would you be a witness? Would you be faithful to the task that God has given to you? Eat the book. Enjoy the sweetness of it. Expect the bitterness of opposition. But go make disciples of all nations. Seeker, a closing word to you. I think it makes all the sense in the world to change teams. Your team is going to lose. It will appear as if you're going to win. But the end of the story is your team loses. So great advice. Switch teams. You can switch team any day that you so choose. Come on over. Be on the winning team as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we would pray you would give us wisdom, insight, to do just what you have called your witnesses to do and to be. We pray that we would be ambassadors, faithful to your end. Give us a heart to be trained to do so. Give us a will ready to obey. May we go into the world with the authority you've given to us. May we make, na- make uh, disciples of all nations. And we'll give you the honor. And Father, I pray that those who are here who are not yours may be religious and in the courtyard but not truly to be measured of the peoples of the temple. Would you even now cause their hearts to be broken with the fact that they have dishonored you and that they might come into your fold, the winning team, even by understanding it's the righteousness of Christ paid for on the cross, our sin paid for on the cross so that that righteousness might be given to us. We pray even now, many a seeker would say, Lord, here's my unrighteousness. I'll let you pay for it on the cross. And I'll take your righteousness to be on a winning team and to serve you through life. Blessed to that end, we pray in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen.